Monsters Walk With Us contains explicit language, adult themes, violence, and may not be suitable for listeners under 18. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Thank you so much for coming on, Tammy. I'm so excited to have you as my guest this week. Why don't you tell everyone how we know each other? Thanks for having me. I'm also really excited. I've been looking forward to this. We know each other from working together in Providence at a university. Good times and bad times, but we made it through. (laughs) (laughs) This week, I'm really excited to talk about these cases with you because these are the true stories that inspired Chicago. And you have quite the robust theater background. I do. Yeah, I've done theater most of my life. I miss it with the pandemic. Obviously, we have not had the opportunity to do theater in a while. We being like the collective theater community. In the United States, because I hear things are getting better other places. Yeah, hashtag I wish things got better here. (laughs) We're working on it, I guess, or not. We'll see. (laughs) I listened to Chicago soundtrack today to prepare for this. Nice. I feel like it's it was recently in my life. I got to uh, let Frankie, or not let him, he's a an individual who gets to make his own choices, but I got <laughs> to, <laughs> I allowed my husband. No, I asked Frankie if he had seen Chicago either on stage or in the film, and he had not seen either. And so we got to watch it together about two weeks ago before you reached out to me about this, and he really liked it. And so I feel like it's a little fresh in my mind too. So that's great. That's amazing. I love that for him, that he got to see that for the first time. I actually have seen it on Broadway before the movie adaptation came out. I was in high school and everyone's in like corsets and lingerie. Yeah. My sister took me to see it when I was 14 or 15 down in New Haven at the Schubert. And <laughs> she's almost 10 years my senior. So she was like, this will be fun. But she had never seen it either on stage and live. And so when the first kind of opening scene started, she leaned over to me and she was like, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was taking you to see porn. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and I was like, I mean, it's not, but you're good. Oh my God. The sources that I used for this case are Wikipedia, episode 175 of the Once Upon a Crime podcast, which is the coolest freaking name ever. A few articles by Emily Lebeau Lucchese. She also wrote a book on Sabella's case called Ugly Prey and a ton of articles. Did I already say that? Yeah, I used a ton of her articles. She wrote a lot of stuff and I read it all. (laughs) (laughs) In like the last day. <laughs> I used an article called In the 1920s, A Makeover Saved This Woman from the Death Penalty by Ray Nudson. The website Chicagoology in the Notorious Chicago section and the archives of the Chicago Tribune, which go deep, deep all the way back to the coverage of this case. All of these cases. In the 1920s in the United States, crime was becoming a lot more mainstream. The prohibition is in full effect, and there's a growing jazz movement. Reporter Maureen Watkins follows the cases that we're going to talk about today for about six months. She then retires from the news business to write the musical Chicago and makes millions in 1920s money. The play was adapted into a 1927 silent film. In 1975, a stage musical, and in 2002, the movie with Richard Gere, Renee Zellweger, and Catherine Zeta-Jones, as well as a bunch of other great people. It actually won the Academy Award for Best Picture 
And in my opinion, it's one of the best Hollywood adaptations. Yeah, I agree. Um, there's a couple scenes in it that I, I really enjoy. I think in terms of the directing style, I just appreciate how artful it is. And uh, it's just very creative. A fun little fact about our Queen Maureen, she funeral crashes Bobby Frank's funeral and interviews Leopold and Loeb just hours before they confess to his murder. Do you know who Leopold and Loeb are? No, but I'd love to know more. Nathan Frudenthal Leopold Jr. and Richard Albert Loeb, usually called Leopold and Loeb, were two wealthy students at the University of Chicago. In May 1924, they kidnap and murder 14-year-old Bobby Franks in Chicago. They commit the murder, which is referred to as the crime of the century, as a demonstration of the fact that they were smarter than everyone else. Big yikes. They believe that they are so intellectually superior that they will be able to pull off the, quote, perfect crime and completely get away with it, which you fucking chump. Both of you. (laughs) You idiots. Like, what? Yeah, no, I'm sorry, but that is some serious toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity ruins the party every time. Yes, every time. So what we're talking about today are some of the true stories that inspired the musical. And to quote the musical for what's sure to be the first of many times, (laughs) let's all go to hell in a fast car and keep it hot. (laughs) I can't wait. A couple of things that are important to keep in mind. This is essentially tabloid journalism at this point in time. So some of these facts are very subjective and The usual process of how things work with murders in the Cook County system in Chicago is that a murder happens, there is an inquest to determine if someone should be charged, and then they go to trial. The first person we are going to talk about is Sabella Nitti. She inspires the character of the Hungarian immigrant in Chicago. Okay. In 1923, Italian immigrant Sabella Nitti is the first woman on death row in Chicago. She was innocent, but the cops and prosecutors don't really care that much about that. They have had a lot of bad press and they desperately need a very public and splashy win. Sabella's husband had allegedly been murdered and she is making a great patsy. She's a little bit older, and she looks like she's lived a pretty tough life. Sabella speaks no English. She is a poor woman who has worked on her farm with her husband, Francesco, and she looks like it. She's got long brown hair. It's very not in fashion with the bobs that were popular at the time. Mm -hmm. She just throws it up in a ponytail and goes to work on the farm like you do. Yeah, you got to get that work done. As we know, the European ideals of so-called beauty standards are pervasive then even more than they are now. So Sabella, with her olive medium complexion, ill-fitting farm worker clothing, she has the deck stacked against her from the very start. The prosecution hinges their argument on her physical appearance and her status as an immigrant. So she's an immigrant and she doesn't dress well, so she killed her husband. Yes. Gross. Yeah. Ugh. Milton Smith is the prosecutor on Sabella's case, and he goes so far to say that Sabella isn't a woman. She's just a monster and a fiend. I would like to say that even though I am a woman and identify as a cishet woman, I sometimes want to identify as a monster and a fiend, but you better fucking bet 
that that's because I am identifying that way and not because some dumbass dude is telling me that's how I identify. I'm over this motherfucker already. It's really despicable to just be like, she's not even human. She's just a beast. Right. It's gross. Ugh. Emily Lebeau Lucchese also wrote a book on Sabella's case called Ugly Prey. It talks specifically about how hard the prosecution and cops went after her, especially compared to some of these other cases that we're going to talk about. There is no physical evidence to implicate Sabella. There are a few very small circumstantial things that they used as evidence, but they don't even have a freaking body for Sabella's husband. I can't. Francesco vanished one night from the family farm along with their life savings of $300. So what I'm hearing is Francesco was just not happy in his marriage. Like initial reaction, Francesco's just like, you know what? I'm going to clear out the cash and I'm going to get out of here. It seems very straightforward to me that he took that money and dipped. Yeah. He was like, peace, babe. Got a new life. I looked it up. $300 is $4,516 in today money. That's a lot of ducats. That's a lot of money. To quote Bailey Sarian, suspish. (laughs) Very suspish. If you don't know who she is, she does amazing makeup and murder mystery videos on YouTube that come out on Mondays, and you should definitely check out her channel. Sabella's lawyer, Eugene Moran, was actually scolded by the judge repeatedly for his ineptitude and utter incompetence. Sounds like some other people that I work with. The judge has to tell this dude that he's fucking it up so bad that he is totally damning Sabella to the jury. And this man still closes out the trial. I can't. Moran is eventually institutionalized in a long-term inpatient facility for mental illness. I would hope that if this happened today, they would look at all the cases that lawyer had where somebody was on death row. But I also have absolutely no confidence in the criminal justice system or law enforcement systems in the United States. Now, forget in the fucking corrupt as fuck 1920s in Chicago. Yeah, there's like no tracking that I'm sure. And so it's like, you know, right now there's so much spotlight on them. But imagine also being in a space where not only were some things hidden, but so much more could be hidden and swept under the rug. Right. The Chicago Daily Tribune reports Sabella as, quote, the husband killer. Okay. All right. The husband killer. This is also very much the vibe that the other newspapers are serving as well. All right. So I'm starting to hear some of that like tabloid issue come through for sure. Yes. And some good old patriarchy and racial bias for good measure. 100%. The reporting around Sabella's appearance was shady as fuck and very vicious. Sabella is found guilty. She becomes the first woman sentenced to death in Cook County. Reporter Genevieve Forbes wrote about watching Sabella when the jury read the verdict. She said that Sabella, quote, ran stubby fingers where dirt was ingrained into broken nails into her matted hair. She shifted her stocky legs and smoothed out the dark blue skirt made full and short for work in the field. She hadn't understood a word, but she twisted up her face in a grotesque angle of fear, inferiority, and cruelty and hope. You got all of that from one facial expression? Yeah. And if that was the case, that you were able to glean that, like that just in terms of it being 
representative of how this woman felt alone, I would assume. And oh, I, I just feel for this lady, like just in this space of, you know, I think about the inability to communicate and to articulate how I feel to someone else who is able to understand me sometimes. I'm like out loud contextualizer. So to then be unable to do that because of a like a language barrier, cultural barrier, also having to deal with the barrier of people trying to paint you as someone that you are not. Um, you know, you have all those, like you said before, the deck is just stacked against this woman from the jump. And we have to talk about the body shaming, right? Yes. As a fat woman who is actively working on my body image issues and being radically happy being fat, I can't help but feel that the way that they are writing about her is compounding the bias in the public and these all white male juries. Yeah. Yeah. She's poor. She's an immigrant. She's not attractive and she's not thin. As Sabella spoke no English, nobody was even able to communicate with her about the results of the trial until the following day. Wait, you're going to catch me the fuck off guard. You're going to tell me that with all the other immigrants in the Chicago area, with all the other immigrants that came to this country, not one motherfucker could be found that spoke the same language she did. Not one person could have helped translate through the trial. Well, you gotta love it. (laughs) The interpreter doesn't even speak the same dialect of Italian that Sabella speaks. So it's not even likely that she fully understands what they're explaining to her. Right. When the message does finally get through that she is guilty and sentenced to death, she collapsed. Oh, my heart. Sabella does eventually get new lawyers and she is able to appeal her death sentence including one of the first female lawyers in Chicago, Helen Cerise. Okay. Helen is a regular little old Olivia Pope and immediately understands that Sabella is going to need a full makeover if her appeal is going to have any chance. They got to give them a little razzle dazzle. (laughs) Razzle dazzle them. And they'll beg you for more. She also teaches Sabella English. Sabella's hair is cut short into a bob, dyed dark to cover all her grays, and Helen buys her form-fitting clothing. So no more farmer's rags. All right. They deeply moisturize her hands, which are weathered from working the farm, and they apply makeup that accentuates her features. Okay, which I'm sure she has beautiful features, right? Like beautiful skin, beautiful dark hair. And like, uh, I just can, I'm imagining her even pre makeover, if you will, still being a stunning individual who just wasn't given the space to shine. And now it sounds like she's being given some space to shine. And I will definitely post before and after pictures of all of these people on the Instagram account. Okay, love it. Helen also coaches Sabella on how to behave and speak more like modern American women and has Sabella stop rocking, which is something that she was doing to self-soothe in court. Obviously, it's stressful when you don't understand what's going on, but that also looks suspicious to these all-white male juries. Right. Like that could be demonstrating not just nerves for being unsure of what's happening, but nerves as a demonstration of guilt. Right. I'm curious. Do we know how long they worked together to go through this kind of makeover, both in appearance, but also in behavior before they went back to defend her case? Um, I didn't get a ton of time frame details on this one, to be honest with you. I know that all of the cases were happening around the same time. So with all of the different dates, it started to get really muddled. I will say that each of these cases has impact on the other because they're all getting reported on around the same time. Sabella's was first. Okay. 
All of a sudden, in true 90s teen movie style, Sabella is a beautiful media darling. Love that. Let me walk down the staircase and rip off my glasses and let my hair down. Exactly. Yeah. Genevieve Forbes, the journalist from before who is really nasty and harsh and body shamey, refers to Sabella as a butterfly. Gag me. Yeah. So Genevieve Forbes is basically Christine Baranski's journalist character from the movie in a nutshell. Yeah. This also makes me think of one of my all-time favorite movies, Jawbreaker. It stars Rose McGowan, Rebecca Gayhart, Julie Benz, and Judy Greer. It's about a group of girls who accidentally murder their best friend, and they get caught red-handed by this stereotypical loser girl played by Judy Greer. Her name is Fern, and they make her over completely into the sexy Violet. Mm. It's really good. Everyone should watch this movie. It's a dark comedy. It's hysterically funny. Sabella is held in Cook County Jail along with some other women who had been getting a lot of coverage in the newspapers. The concept of a female killer was very salacious. And as a result, these investigations and trials were getting covered very heavily. Allegedly, Sabella's introduction to new inmates was Michoke, interpreted as I'm sentenced to hang. Whoa. Fuck. Like, fuck that. That is fuck. Yeah. Ah! Sabella's makeover has made her more accessible and attractive by the conventional standards of beauty at the time, and so has her positive media attention. Her case goes all the way to the Illinois Supreme Court, and her trial is delayed and then delayed again. That's rude. You're putting my life on the line? You're going to delay it? Get out of here. This is a huge L for the prosecution because now the public opinion of her has changed significantly. Eventually, they have to completely drop the charges. In the musical Chicago, the unnamed Hungarian immigrant character is loosely based on Sibella, but in the musical, the character is executed. The other women, the alleged Mary murderesses of Cook County, take note of this makeover and its effects. Belva Gartner, another woman in jail on murder charges, starts to give fashion advice to the women for their trial appearances. And the women know that they can manipulate the media. Immediately, they start using this to their advantage. Interesting. Belva Gardner is who the character Velma Kelly is based on. Okay. Belva Gardner is born Belva Eleonora Boosinger on September 14th, 1884. After changing her name to Belva Gardner, she became a popular jazz singer. She traveled to clubs around Chicago. And while she wasn't a huge celebrity, she got plenty work. She's married briefly, but in 1917, she gets divorced. Then she gets married again to the very rich Walter Gartner, but they also get divorced. Belva is arrested on March 11th, 1924, after her married boyfriend, Walter Law, is found shot dead in his car in front of her home. Yay. Walter was a young Chicago local who sold cars. He was married and had a child. They had met mm. when Belva bought her car from him, and they started up an affair shortly after. Okay, seeing some parallels here. They would often meet in gin bars at night, and the relationship was very hot and heavy. On the night of the murder, they had been having a very drunk party night with a lot of gin. You know if it was me, I'd be doing gin and pineapple juice. <laughs> I'd probably stick to the classic gin and tonic with maybe some lime in there. I was thinking 1920s, they probably don't have a lot of pineapple juice around for me. Probably not, right? I feel like that's probably a pretty expensive import yeah. at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Walter is five to 10 years younger than Belva. She is somewhere around 38, although she had kept her age a complete secret until it finally came out at trial. All right. 
Belva tells police that she was so drunk that she blacked out and she has no memories between leaving the cabaret club slash cafe that they were at and suddenly hearing a great explosion as Walter fell onto her dead. Pretty big time gap, my friend. One of the papers reported Belva was so drunk at the time she couldn't even remember that she had shot him, which happens all the time. Am I right? Yeah, every day. Shoot. I have had a lot of issues with substance abuse, with alcohol and other substance, and I've had a lot of regrettable blackouts and brownouts. I've never shot someone. (laughs) And I I can't imagine, had you done that, that would... I feel like that's one of those instances where, you know, you talk about all of a sudden you're getting sober real quick. I feel like that would be a very sobering type incident. And and while obviously like biologically you would still be intoxicated, I feel like you also wouldn't forget if a gun was in your hand and you pulled a trigger at someone, right? I believe that you could black out, certainly. But I also believe that you are still fully responsible for shooting someone. Oh, yeah. During the investigation, it's found that Belva likely lied to the cops and to be in the 1920s mindset for a minute. Man, you see, you're never going to get me, coppers. <laughs> the investigation paperwork says that Belva and Walter got drunk at the Jingham Cafe. By the way, this place denies that they serve any gin, just ginger ale because the prohibition. Yep. Hashtag prohib. You can't be like, yeah, they were getting shwasted over there in the corner. <laughs> what did they call it in the, the Harry Potter film? Um, giggle water? Like, yeah, they were getting some giggle water. Yes. They drive back to Belva's house. The car is found in front of her house and his body is hanging over the steering wheel. Her gun is on the floor. Ugh. She's found inside the apartment with her clothes covered in blood. And she maintains that she's so drunk she can't remember anything. Okay. The podcast I mentioned, Once Upon a Crime, said in their episode that later, Belva said to the police that a bet had been made. They would flip a coin, and the winner of the coin toss would take the first shot. If they missed, the loser of the coin toss would shoot at them, and they would keep going until someone was hit to prove who was the better shot once and for all. What? 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 Where in anyone's... I don't... What? I just, I'm having trouble conceptualizing any part of my being where I would enter into a conversation and entertain the idea that I'm going to do some kind of crazy drunk coin flipping roulette. Like, (laughs) absolutely not. No, no. Hard pass. Thank you. Next. I will not be participating. Now we got to Annie get your gun plot. Like it's too much. No. At the inquest, there is some very damning testimony about Belva and Walter's relationship. Pale E. Goodwin, Walter's co-worker, says that Walter had some concerns about Belva in the weeks leading up to his death. Quote, Walter told me on Monday that he planned to take out more life insurance because Mrs. Gartner threatened to kill him. (gasps) Three weeks before, he had told me that she locked him in her flat with her and threatened to stab him with a knife unless he stayed there. Oh, my goodness. So she straight up kidnapped this dude. That's what that that is, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I feel like I can't student affairs roommate mediation myself out of this one. My goodness. The prosecution uses this as their proof that Belva was jealous, and when he tried to leave her, she shot him. The day before he was shot, he told one of his friends that he was helpless when it came to gin and women, and he would probably be shot by Belva. Ugh. Sorry. The helpless when it comes to gin and women piece, just like, 
again, oh my gosh, are we going to step into this realm of just this patriarchal bullshit? Like you need to be, you're, you're a grown adult. You need to be responsible for your actions. Dumbass. <laughs> I just, he says also that he'd probably be shot by Belva and mentions that they'd been going out drinking at least twice a week for some time. Jen and women. My God. If you think that someone is going to shoot you, do not go put yourself in a situation where you are alone with them and there is alcohol, please. Yeah, yeah. PSA from from us to from here from here to you, folks listening. If you think that's going to happen, maybe reconsider who your friends are. Leave a note before you go talk to them. Belva does not testify at the inquest to determine whether or not she'll be charged. She actually has three lawyers, and they were hired by her ex husband William. The jury deliberates for 20 minutes and they find that Belva did kill William. So she is going to trial. Belva ends up being acquitted. The jury deliberated for six and a half hours and returns a verdict of not guilty. It's a long time to debate. The Chicago Tribune reports Miss Gartner lost the emotionless poise she maintained throughout her trial, burst into hysterical laughter, threw her arms around her attorneys, and thanked the jury. She burst into laughter? That's concerning behavior, right? To me, that's textbook. Suspish. Very suspicious, right? If I mean, if I was sitting in that space, if I was her, I don't know if hysterical laughter would be my MO, right? Relief, size. I would be crying probably happy tears knowing my emotional ability to process. But, but like, I just, I imagine someone very maniacally laughing, I guess is what, I, what I'm picturing right now. And I can't... <laughs> I can't wrap my head around how, you know, like what that must have looked like for the jury that just acquitted her. I've said it before and I will say it again. Read the room, bitch. Right? Read the fucking room. Uh, She's quoted as saying, oh, I'm so happy. So happy. And now I want to hurry out and get some air. No, no. She wants to hurry out and get some more gin. That's what she probably wants. Belva is released, and after gathering what few belongings she did have at the jail, she's free. She tells reporters she's going to stay with her sister for a while. She also announces that she will remarry William Gartner, who was her ex-husband, the wealthy manufacturer, and that they will sail to Europe to, quote, forget all this. What's that like? The white privilege of it all. <laughs> the white privilege. I'm going to forget about this and just put it behind me. Ugh, gross. Walter's widow is pitied universally in the media, and it's very obvious that this was a life-ruining event for her. Yeah, I bet. They're covering her 1920s paparazzi style, and she is there when the verdict is read. She collapses, and afterwards, she tells reporters there's no justice in Illinois. No, there's not. Not real justice. Nope. In 1925, following her acquittal, Belva remarried William Gartner again. In 1926, he files for divorce, claiming that Belva is abusive and an alcoholic. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. We have to acknowledge that at least throughout all of this is likely a woman's dependency on alcohol, right? On a substance. And again, we're in this space of, as we're seeing today, a lack of support in certain um, services where we could be maybe assisting folks who, you know, had they not suffered from 
an addiction or um, an addictive disease, maybe they wouldn't be making certain choices. Um, and not that those diseases dictate those things, but they are certainly contributing factors. And I have also dealt with alcoholism in my life in a secondary type of capacity um, with family members. And I know that there are certain decisions maybe they wouldn't have made had they been in their right mind, if you will, right? Had they been able to clearly make a certain choice as opposed to making a choice that is clouded by the alcohol, which is controlling part of their lives in, in many ways. Um, so this is interesting, right? Like, I don't want to feel bad for this woman because she clearly sounds like she kind of sucks and, and isn't so great. But I also want to acknowledge that there are many things that she probably needed some help with that maybe she didn't have access to. Right. I understand that she had clearly a substance abuse issue, a problem with alcohol, but that does not excuse that she was like a toxic and domestically violent, awful person. Agreed. Who got off scot-free based on being thin and pretty and knowing how to dress. There was a lot of coverage of how everyone was dressing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I'm here for that. I, I do not disagree. On July 5th, William Gartner claimed that Belva threatened to murder him after he found her with another man. And she is convicted of drunk driving in November 1926. By 1930, she and William Gartner, still together, had moved to Europe. Following his death on December 2nd, 1948 in Wilmette, Illinois, Belva moved to Pasadena, California, and lived with her sister. She died of natural causes on May 14th, 1965, at the age of 80. Interesting. So the last case that we're going to talk about is Beulah Anon, a.k.a. Roxy Hart. Beulah Anon was born Beulah Sheriff in Owensboro, Kentucky, to Mary and John Sheriff. While living in Kentucky, she married her first husband, newspaper linotype operator Perry Stevens. She has one son with him. Soon after getting married, they divorce, and Beulah leaves her son with his father and moves to Louisville. She then meets car mechanic Al Albert Anon, and they move to Chicago together, where they get married on March 29, 1920. In Chicago, Albert finds work as a mechanic at a garage, and at 23, Beulah eventually becomes a bookkeeper at Tenants Motel and Laundry. At work, she meets Harry Kaldstedt, and the two begin joking with each other and getting a lot closer. They start eating lunch together, and eventually they start taking walks together when they're on breaks from work. That is absolutely sounding salacious. Eventually, this does turn sexual. Oh boy. They drink, dance, and screw at Beulah's place while Al is at work. As to quote you from, you know, our time in Providence, the disrespect. Absolutely. It's like in the afternoon when Al is hard at work. Right? This dude's like trying to contribute to your partnership and your family. Like if you're not in love with him, break up with the man, you know? Right. On April 3rd, 1924, in Beulah and Al's bedroom, she shoots Harry. Okay. Beulah calls Al in a panic, and he comes home as fast as he can. He sees Harry dead against the wall, just propped against the wall. That's traumatizing. He also sees that Harry had been shot in the back. Al glances around the room. He assesses the situation. (laughs) And he sees the man's clothes are piled up on a side chair. He's putting these pieces together. And there's a bunch of empty wine bottles everywhere. There's also jazz music still playing in the background. Wow. Beulah tells Al that she had met Harry at work. He stopped by unexpectedly with booze in tow and starts hitting on her pretty hard. 
she gets uncomfy and she tells Harry, ah, like you can come in for one drink because he's been bothering her. And she's hoping he'll leave afterwards if she's just hospitable and polite. She also tells Al that Harry snapped and tried to rape her. She grabs a gun that they keep in the bureau. <laughs> And she threatens Harry, telling him to leave. He lunges at her and she shoots. So they did not both reach for the gun. <laughs> Al, a.k.a. Mr. Cellophane, played by John C. Riley. Best role I think I've ever seen him in. Amazing. Like, if I had to pick a John C. Riley film, I know it's not like he's not a, he's a supporting character in this film for sure. But if I had to pick like any role that I was obsessed with him in, John C. Riley, if you ever hear this, that's the one for you, my dude. You did such a good job. It was amazing. It breaks my heart every time. Yes. I could watch it a thousand times and I'd still be heartbroken. He calls the cops and he tells them that his wife has been attacked and someone's been shot. When the cops get there, Beulah is very clearly drunk and she reeks of wine. So they take her down to the station for questioning. Beulah tells the coppas the same story at first, but after a few hours of being interrogated, she starts sobering up and breaking down. She admits to having an affair with Harry and that she'd lied to Al about how well she had known him. Beulah then says that on the day of the murders, she'd had Harry over that afternoon for some fun laughs, good times, and they get to drinking pretty hard. An argument starts after Beulah makes a joke about being done with Harry. He gets upset and starts getting ready to leave. She begs him not to leave, and when he ignores her, she snaps. She grabs the gun and shoots him. After she shoots him, she gets worried that someone heard the gunshot, and she blasts the old Victrola and plays the jazz song Hula Loo loud as fuck, while watching him laying on the floor, bleeding out. Can I just say, Beulah sounds like an overreaction. Just a little bit. Shooting a dude for just just trying to leave because he was upset. Sounds like an overreaction. He's like, I'm wasted, you're wasted, I'm fucking out of here. And she's like, no, actually, you're not. I'll be the judge of that. You are forever not out of here. She plays the song on repeat for four hours straight, drinking and just sitting there next to him, bleeding out and dying until she finally calls Al after he is dead. Four hours? My God. The jury is told that her motive was jealousy. Because if she couldn't have Harry, nobody could. Just like the musical, Al is very upset with Beulah once it comes out that she lied about knowing Harry and having an affair with him. Eventually, though, he softens and they reconcile. Al even springs for a high-priced attorney, W.W. O'Brien. He goes to work on Beulah's image and also starts to manipulate the press. Our queen, Maureen Watkins, gets the scoop and she gets to sit down with Beulah for her first one-on-one -on -one interview. Shortly after, Beulah is dubbed the prettiest murderer in Chicago, and Maureen's coverage is absolutely impacted by Beulah's looks. All of the papers focus on her blue eyes, her cute nose, her pale complexion, and her slim body. Her traditional attractiveness is literally fawned over, even while they are covering a murder that they know she committed. I just want to say that had I been a murderess in the 1920s, I would have lost my trial. <laughs> I don't meet these beauty standards. <laughs> I'm screwed. You'd have to hit the prison beauty salon. I sure would. 
By the start of the trial, Beulah's media image is a good girl swept away by jazz and liquor. She testifies and she absolutely works her wiles on the jury. She is easily able to manipulate these men and she knows it. She says that when Harry visited, she saw that he was drunk, but he wouldn't leave until she had a drink with him, and he was very insistent. She said, I warned him Al would kill both of us if he caught us, and Harry said, to hell with your husband. Beulah says that Harry then tried to drag her into the bedroom, and she tells him she's in delicate condition, aka knocked up. She's cooking one. She thought that he might leave when he heard this but he still won't go. She further testifies that she told Harry, Al's going to shoot us both if you don't leave. And Harry says, well, where's the gun? The gun is on the bed and they both reach for the gun. So Al left the house and just left the gun in the middle of the bed? Just on just on the bed. Yeah. Suspish. They both reach for the gun. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. They both <laughs> reach for the gun. They struggle and the gun goes off. Beulah realizes Harry has been shot. She goes into a state of shock. And when she snaps out of it, she calls Al. That's all great. But when it comes time for cross-examination, they press Beulah on her first statement where she said she was trying to get Albert to stay. She says, I don't remember giving that statement. I must have been in shock. And they ask her about her logic for having this drink with Harry according to her story yeah, and the details of the crime, because based on her statements about where Harry was in relation to the bedroom, A, how would he know the gun was out? And B, why did he get shot in the back? Yeah, it doesn't add up, my friend. Right. On May 24th, the jury deliberates for two hours. They find her not guilty. Pays to be pretty, Mayor. Pays to be pretty. Like, if it's all white, it's all right, was Ugh. obviously the attitude. Yeah, sounds like it. Beulah says she's very grateful, but she was always sure she'd be found innocent. I wonder what that's like to have that kind of assurance. She and Al are relieved. The prosecutor is very pissed off. And on his way out of the courtroom, his quote is a very salty, well, another pretty woman going free. I feel like I probably would have said something like that, too. You're not wrong, sir. Here we go again. Beulah ends up thanking Al for all his support by holding a press conference to say she's leaving him. <laughs> Al, you were great. And now that I'm done with you, see you later. She also reveals she was actually never pregnant and she just wants to get on with her life because, quote, Al doesn't want me to have a good time. He doesn't want to go anywhere and he doesn't like to dance. And I'm just ready to forget about all that. Isn't that what the last woman said? I just want to dance. <laughs> Beulah was hoping that she would be able to move out west and start up a movie career. And this ends up being a very short-lived pipe dream. In 1927, after her divorce from Al was finalized, she marries Edward Harlib. Just three months later, she claimed that he had been cruel to her and files for divorce. Hmm. In the divorce settlement, Harlib pays her $5,000, equivalent to $74,000 in today money. She was definitely doing some digging there. Some gold digging. Oh my God, absolutely, right? Yeah. After her divorce from Harlib, she was involved with a fourth man, Abel Marcus. Beulah died of tuberculosis when she was 28 at the Chicago Fresh Air Sanatorium. She had been staying there under the name Beulah Stevens in 1928, which was four years after she was acquitted. I'm guessing that that being infamous sheen and like I'm famous for anything 
wore off real fucking quick when she had to go live in the real world. Hell yeah. She was buried in her home state of Kentucky in the Pleasant Cumberland Presbyterian Church Cemetery in Davies County. Interesting. And those are the true stories that inspired the musical Chicago. There's a few more, but these are like the main plot points, I would say, from the musical. I feel really inspired to do research and read about these because I really, from like the, the writing perspective, I love the idea that someone or a group of people were able to look at this and draw parallels and, you know, pull themes out and, and create art out of it <laughs> the murders were not art the musical is artistic um and uh things that i enjoy one of the people who is in the musical go to hell kitty is based off of a real woman so if you are looking to dig into stuff i didn't talk about that's one i would recommend thank you so much for coming on i had a lot of fun talking about these cases with you and i'm glad that we got to share our love of chicago and understand all the references same. I'm really excited to take this stuff back and talk to my husband <laughs> yeah, about all this stuff that we got to nerd out about today. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm really inspired to hear the real life stories behind some of the, the, you know, the music that we love so much. So I'm trying to end things on a high note because a lot of the times, especially in this case, justice not truly served. What is something that's made you happy recently? That's a great question. Um, as you know, like I, I studied English when I was in college and undergrad, and I made a promise to myself that I would read more. And with this new year, a type of resolution, I don't really believe in New Year's resolutions, but I, I decided to try to stick to one this this year in 2021. And so I promised myself I would read more, and the reading has really brought me some happiness lately. And um, it's been really great to kind of escape into those spaces where I feel safe with the with my friends and my books. So. Something that has made me happy lately, my depression has been really bad this week. And I also was sick at the same time, which is just the most unfortunate and miserable combo. Yeah, not great. And today I got some extra spoons. I woke up in a good place and I was able to repot a plant that no joke has been so neglected and abused by me. I think I've saved it. There were some new green shoots, so I think it's going to grow back. But it was like one of those things where my executive dysfunction was so bad that I just could not take the time to get it done. I did it today. It took like less than five minutes, but that's one of the things about mental health is like, it can seem like the smallest thing, but it was such a hurdle. And now that it's done, I immediately felt so much better. I'm excited to see it start to grow and more shoots start to come up again. But I'm really proud that I was finally able to get that done. I feel like it's been at least a month, if not longer, that I have been procrastinating that even after I bought a new pot and the soil. I'm proud of you for doing that. That's awesome. Yeah. Listeners, please check us out on Instagram if you want some pictures from the cases and we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Hi, friends. If you like the podcast, I would love if you would go ahead and leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the only place that I can actually get ratings and get reviews and get ranked. Please check us out on Instagram at Monsters Walk With Us, all one word. And I'd love if you could send us an email and tell me where you're listening from, maybe suggest a case. The email address is hidden period monsters period walk at gmail.com. 